Good morning. I'm Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM. Today I am so happy to have in the studio a good friend and industry colleague of mine, Brett Pulley, who is an accomplished journalist, entrepreneur, and author of The Billion Dollar Bet, the biography of Robert Johnson, which is the inside story of black entertainment television, as our in-studio guest today. Brett, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. I know we've been trying to do this interview for the last couple of years because every time I turn around, you're traveling to some beautiful, exotic place to interview someone. So (laughs) it's so good to have you here. Well, I can tell you that those interviews in those places, they probably sound more exotic and uh, uh, more attractive and fun than they really are. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm glad we're able to make it work. You know, for our listening audience, uh, share with us a little bit about your, your education and your background. And uh, at some point, you're going to tell us about your nomination for a Pulitzer as well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sure. Well, I um, um, am a graduate uh, of Hampton University, a proud graduate, I should say, uh, in Hampton, Virginia. Um, I have a master's degree from Northwestern University in journalism. And, um, and in fact, uh, I, I mention Hampton proudly because it's a place that uh, I continue to spend a, a lot of time uh with um, I'm I'm also on the board of trustees at Hampton, uh, which is just really an honor and um, and and a real pleasure. And, and Hampton is also the place where my wife Stacy graduated from, so it's uh, it, it's near and dear to us. And um, you started your career where? Early early days, Brett. The early before days. Before Dow Jones. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I. Um, I'm originally from Washington, and uh, Washington area, I should say, born and raised in D.C. and went to high school in. And he's Oxford. a Redskins fan, folks. Uh, I just, want, I just uh, wanted to put that out there. My, my dad <laughs> bought Redskins tickets in 1963, season tickets, and uh, God rest his soul, I I still own those tickets to this day, even though I've been living here in the New York area for about 18 years. Uh, so I, of course, was quite pleased with uh, the recent outcome of the season opener for the Giants and the Redskins, uh, given that I'm surrounded by Giants fans and the Giants were supposed to win. But I digress. I, uh, <laughs> well, I, uh, well, it's been I, a long time since the Redskins have had something to cheer No, the about, Giants so. have owned the Redskins for some time, so right. we're, we're very happy about that. Uh, but, I, but I am from, from that area originally um, and um, uh, have been here in the New York area for about 18 years. And if you and I, of course, uh, met in Chicago, uh, which is where we both uh, did time, quality time at Dow Jones when I was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Um, And um, um, after the Wall Street Journal moved here with the New York Times uh, and was a national correspondent at the New York Times, uh, after that... um, Spent several years as a senior editor at Forbes magazine and have been at Bloomberg News the past few years. I should say in between Forbes and Bloomberg, I have uh, I have covered media and entertainment for many years, uh, which is really what I was doing most of that time at Forbes. And as a result of 
you know, having spent my entire entire career in media and at, while at the same time covering media, I really uh, kind of had a front row seat as the industry began to, you know, just fundamentally shift uh, over the past several years. And I could see uh, from that perspective that uh, the media industry was really uh, on a good day going sideways at best. And uh, while I was while I was becoming keenly aware of that, the opportunity came along for me to go over to digital media and actually run a uh, uh, an internet company, New York dot com. So I did that for a couple of years, and and uh, to this day still have a stake in that company, which is a uh, a website with a great URL, n e w y o r k dot com. That's that that's very valuable in and Extremely. of itself. Yes, and, and the focus is media, or is really entertainment and tourism uh, in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years, and uh, for the past few years, I've been covering media and entertainment at at, at Bloomberg News, one of the sort of fastest growing uh, information companies out there. Uh, as you probably know, we now own Business Week magazine. Yes. Bought that, uh, I guess, about a year and a half ago, and and uh, breathe life back into it. Yeah, it, the magazine mm-hmm. looks great now, and it's really coming along. And um, and uh, of course, we have the core terminal business, which is what is really uh, uh, made Bloomberg and really created, built this fortune for the mayor. Well, you and I, uh, during our time at Dow Jones, we witnessed the start of Bloomberg and how Bloomberg. Yes. Um, had taken over the business from Telerate, which is yes, we uh, which did. is a would be an interesting story to tell. <laughs> no, I tell you, that's really amazing. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, in those days, and we're talking about the '90s. We're not talking about a real long time ago. Talking about the '80s. Yeah, well, the '80s. Michael Bloomberg ultimately launched '85 yeah. his business in 1980. Right. And in the uh, right in the mid '80s. Um, we're talking about uh, uh, Telerate and Dow Jones's product really being way out in front, right. um, and of course now um, that's non-existent and mm-hmm. was consumed by others. And while at the same time, Bloomberg has built something that has tremendous value and really is an essential tool mm-hmm. uh, for people in financial services. And and what it really amounts to is it's about it's almost three hundred thousand people globally who pay a tremendous subscriber fee for all of that proprietary information that people like myself are kicking out of that place every day. And they pay over $20,000 a year. I think it's about twenty-two dollars or $23,000 a year now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you talk about a subscriber base, uh, which is something that, you know, media companies are increasingly – trying to find right. because during this last downturn <clears throat> they, they came to realize that they didn't want to be totally dependent on advertising so everyone now covets the idea of having a subscriber base that's why we see companies like the new york times now trying to make subscribers out of their online readers right uh and uh, others are doing in fact the times just launched a paywall to 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 built subscribers online with the Boston Globe product. Right. So everyone wants a, a subscriber base uh, where they have that guaranteed revenue stream. And uh, boy, Bloomberg has one that's out of this world. Uh, 
given and, the amount those subscribers and then, and then, of course, Bloomberg has launched into legal as well. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, what has happened is over the last few years, Bloomberg has really sort of launched these new verticals where the idea is to become to the legal profession uh, what we are to the financial services profession, which is an essential tool. And, you know, we've also launched Bloomberg Government uh, in Washington, which is, again, to become to people in in politics and government uh, the same thing we are to people in financial services. Uh, the company about two weeks ago uh, spent nearly a billion dollars to buy Bureau of National Affairs, which is uh, another uh, – they're probably a distant cousin of Bloomberg because they're very wonkish like <laughs> Bloomberg and, right. and very data driven mm-hmm. uh, like Bloomberg. So so all that's to, you know, to really to, mm-hmm. to, to, to build that business up in Washington. Now, Brett, you're very humble about the success in your career. And, and uh, I just like to point out that I believe that when you and I first met, we were sharing some stories and you were telling me how when you were in graduate school that you were actually delivering the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> well, it, well, it actually was in between undergrad and graduate okay. school. When mm-hmm. I finished in Hampton, after I finished in Hampton, I was an editorial assistant in Washington mm-hmm. at U.S. News and World Report. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that means is I was really a glorified gopher. But I had the privilege of being a glorified gopher for the editor of the magazine. And this was in the days <clears throat> uh, when first Marvin Stone was the editor and then... Uh, Mort Zuckerman bought the magazine, and uh, uh, Shelby Coffey became editor. And uh, so I, I worked for those guys. Harry Evans was mm-hmm. in the editor's office, uh, Tina Brown's husband. And I, um, uh, you know, after doing that a couple of years, decided I would go back and get my master's. And, and before I went back to Northwestern, um, I, I needed to make money. And so I uh, got a job delivering uh, the Wall Street Journal. And uh, I would do that before I, you know, before daybreak, before I went into mm-hmm. U.S. News. Mm-hmm. And the the funny part about it is, and this is where you and I connect, is that after I finished graduate school, I worked at Gannett and a couple of other papers around the country. Mm-hmm. I worked at Gannett's uh, paper in um, Rochester, New York, and one out in Illinois in Danville and um, USA Today, and then I went with the Tribune Company at a paper in Orlando, the Orlando Sentinel. But from there is where I landed at the Wall Street Journal in Chicago. And so they sent me to the Chicago Bureau, and there was a woman in um, uh, Human Resources in Chicago with Dow Jones. Nancy Ruffner. Yes. Uh-huh. And so the day <laughs> I started, she came over and said, there's something weird in the system. She said, have you worked for the company before? And I actually didn't even realize that, quote, unquote, <laughs> right. because I was just delivering newspapers back then. I had no no real design at that time on right. on, on being a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and, they, and, the, and Dow Jones owned a company called National Delivery Service. Right. And that's actually who I worked for. Right. But it was wholly owned by Dow Jones. Right. And uh, she said, there's something weird in the system. Your name's coming up as if you worked here before. So... <laughs> So I said, I did. Uh, so, yes, I delivered the papers uh, before writing for them. But then to go from there to the New York Times, where you, I believe it was a series that you were doing on casino gambling. It was either yes. on politics or casino gambling, but you were nominated for a Pulitzer. 
Tell us about that. Well, that's I mean that that's that that's an honor to uh, to have been nominated, especially at the times. Um, it, what it was was I spent oh probably almost two years writing about gambling in America. Right. Right. And the idea was really to not uh, so much write about the gaming industry, as it's called, uh, but to really write about the social phenomena. And this was at a time when when gambling was just sort of sweeping across America, uh, from riverboat gambling to uh, states that were actually approving casinos um, to the spread of lotteries. And I don't remember the exact number, but it was something like, you know, there was some form of legalized gambling in, you know, 40-some states right, right. at that point. So we really, you know, what I really was looking at was the the impact of gambling, the impact that it was having on senior citizens uh, who were, you know, um, uh, in some cases um, spending uh, uh, a lot of their time and a lot of their uh, uh retirement savings in casinos, but in many cases, we're also finding a much-needed social outlet, to be fair, uh, on those casino buses and, and with the people who they spent their time with. And, you know, and I wrote about everything from that to uh, the impact it was having um, um, in neighboring states where the states didn't receive the the tax benefit from having the casinos, but they received all the social ills in terms of people having gambling problems right. and wrote right. about uh, the impact it was having on teenagers mm-hmm. uh, in places uh, where uh, going to the casino and gambling for the first time was becoming a, a rite of passage. Mm. Um, so a whole host of things mm-hmm. like that. And um, um, it was, um, it was, um, there was no shortage of stuff to write about at that time, and of course, I mean that's it's a phenomenon that has only expanded and and um, continues to expand. Really, I mean there are places that are still. Uh, I still hear hear the argument. It's funny. I was listening to something recently, like within the last couple of weeks on television. I don't remember which state uh, was debating the issue, but it's always the same arguments. Whereas there are people who oppose it, and then <laughs> typically. Some uh, politicians get behind it on the basis that, uh, to the extent there are benefits from having legalized gambling in our uh, 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 locality, we don't have the benefits if it's going to the state next door. So they say, and then to the extent there are any problems with it, you know, we still have all of those, so we might as well get the upside also. Upside, right. We're gonna get- and that's how it ends up spreading. I mean, right. right. So if, we, if we're going to get the ills, we might as well get the, the spills. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, no, that's yeah. right. I mean, we've seen just in the last couple of years, Pennsylvania mm-hmm. uh, has uh, increasingly uh, approved the type of games that are, are, are available City. in the state. It's hurting in Atlantic City. Yes. Well, yeah. you know, in Atlantic City, Atlantic City is like another story unto itself. It's, it really is. It's uh, yeah. it's 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 you know it's it's I think to this day still the second largest gaming uh, uh, location in the country, uh, but continues to be a distant second uh, to Las Vegas, and for you know a whole host of reasons, seems to have a difficult time uh, kind of uh, realizing its promise. Right. Well, as I, I shared with you, I'm doing a series 
on Atlantic City, interviewing a number of folks from Atlantic City to talk about the challenges within Atlantic City. It's interesting. One of my guests said that when I asked him about crime, he said, oh, well, the crime, when you really look at the number of people that come in, the crime is really not that bad. Well, I asked a pastor of the church, Pastor Days, and he said, oh, the crime is horrible. We got 27 unsolved murders. So, you know, it's interesting how the, you get the, 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 the range of viewpoint from one person saying, oh, it's not that bad. Sure. But then, of course, when you get 27 unsolved murders, that is pretty bad. And that's 27 unsolved mur- murders really in a very small area. I mean, we're yes. not talking about a large city. Right, right. Right. But, Brett, let's talk about your book. Fascinating book on, on Bob Johnson. Um, I remember the day that um, the story ran in Forbes, and uh, you stopped by my office and gave me a, a, a complimentary edition, which I, I, I have to this day. Really? Um, That's great. And the story was just an awesome story. And, f- and from there, uh, you went on to, to, to write his um, biography. Um, tell us about that experience, and tell us what did you learn about his leadership style? Um, sure. Well, the, um, the book did evolve, as you said. It evolved from a cover story at, uh, at, at Forbes, and um, it's easy to know exactly how long ago it was because uh, that cover at Forbes, we debated. Uh, that was for the Forbes 400, our annual list of, uh, of um, the richest people in America. And Bob was, um, at that time, he had just become the first, by our calculation, uh, and, and I think pretty much all others, the first African-American billionaire as a result of selling black entertainment television to Viacom for about $3 billion. And um, that cover was slated to go. We were closing it when 9-11 happened. And so we debated, um, like every media outlet, what we would put out right after that. And we decided to go ahead and put Bob on the cover of the main issue. And then we did a special issue mm-hmm. um, on, um, on, the, uh, the, on the tragedy. Um, so, so that was 10 years ago. And, you know, and then... Time flies. It, it does. And... Wow. And as a result of that, the opportunity came along, agents called, et cetera, and, and, uh, and the rest is history. So the book, while I had interviewed Bob uh, on a, a number of occasions at the New York Times and, and at Forbes, um, once um, I wanted to do the book, Bob actually did not want to cooperate. So a lot of my time was spent with um, trying to get him to cooperate. But you know what happens in, in journalism when, well, in in good journalism anyway, when a subject doesn't cooperate, is it inevitably forces you to dig that much deeper. Um, and while it can be a challenge to, as we say, write around someone, um, it can also be very rewarding. And in the case of black entertainment television, it happened to be a, a story that I had a lot of familiarity with. Uh, from having followed and watched what he had built over the years and from knowing people who had been there. and Because remember, I'm writing about the, the industry that I also happen to work in and have spent my entire career in. So it's a fast, it was a fascinating story. And, um, and Bob really built that from nothing. I mean, he, he went and borrowed um, a half a million dollars, ultimately. You know, he got a business plan and 
sort of pulled it together and borrowed a half a million dollars from John <coughs> Malone. And John Malone, who, co- who owns Liberty Media. Right. Uh, stars, mm-hmm. and Stars Television, and uh, Controls Direct TV, and uh, a bunch of stuff. Um, but but uh, John had made, John Malone had, uh, at, at that time, really uh, controlled a lot of uh, cable distribution in the country. And so what cable distributors were concerned with during those days was having programming. And so they were getting behind people who had ideas for programs, and they were bankrolling uh, new networks and taking equity in them and et cetera, et cetera, which is why all of those people ended up being so tremendously rich. It was like the great gold rush at that time. And so Bob was able to launch this network that was geared towards African Americans. And, um, you know, and, and much of the programming uh, over the years was really very inexpensive, free to very cheap. Uh, and, you know, as you know, a lot of it was music videos, which, of course, the, the, the music companies were, were uh, producing, paying for and producing and handing over to channels like MTV and black entertainment television because it was a way to promote their songs. And especially for records. the African-American artists who um, were not getting the type of exposure in MTV, so BET right. was the perfect outlet. That's right. So B- uh, MTV really created an opportunity for Bob because MTV was not playing those videos. I mean, you know, the, the story goes, Michael Jackson, I can't remember which one. That was kind of the first one to really, Michael Jackson was the first African-American artist to break through on MTV. MTV was really rock-oriented when it launched. Uh, so it was there was an opportunity there for Bob. So he programmed it with that kind of uh, stuff. He programmed it with uh, sort of lowbrow uh, comedy, uh, stuff that he was able to slice and dice and, and repurpose and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, show in different ways. And then, of course, also with... Um, programs that um that broadcasters um had uh aired uh and then canceled so he was able to pick up these repeats um uh of um programs like gee i can't remember exactly which ones and but, I, I, but i remember like that the jefferson's or the good times and right. things that would appeal to an african-american yes. audience yes yeah. and um and you know he built tremendous value really with uh, a, a, a low cost product, and um, you know, and they got good penetration. Uh, uh, in part, you know, the way it works, or the way it certainly worked in those days with those cable companies, was um, you know, stuff would be packaged, channels are packaged together, and and those distributors out there take the package, and so Bob built a tremendous distribution system, and uh, and and he. You know, I don't have to tell you, you know, he was criticized a lot over the years for the the, 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 the type of mm-hmm. programming and the, the content and the racy mm-hmm. um, videos. And um, for better or for worse, uh, he nonetheless uh, built a very valuable entity and uh, was able to sell it to Viacom, which owns MTV. Uh, for about $3 billion. And, you know, John Malone, as a result of that $500 million that he invested, as I recall, uh, I, I want to say his his uh, his payoff was about $800 million. So he did well. and uh, That's off the initial 500000 Off of the initial, 
yeah, off yeah. Of the initial wow. half a million. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Got about eight hundred million. That was like I think it was about That's twenty, great. maybe twenty-one years later. Wow. So, so from a monetary standpoint, they did extremely well. Mm-hmm. Uh, BET continues to perform well for Viacom, and um, and and uh, Bob Johnson. Um, I saw him out at Sun Valley in July. Is uh, is still among the media moguls? Are, are you going to do a follow up story on him? No, I, I don't have any plans to. Okay. I mean, I, I I hear different things, uh, and there have been some different stories about you know he's had a couple of the investments, things that he's invested in have not performed so well. I mean, he has significant. Um, uh, Hotels and uh, 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 resorts, significant investments in that area. And then, of course, he bought an NBA franchise, which I don't think performed too well. But, I mean, that's kind of the the nature of that business. And he sold it to Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. So he got out of that business. Right. He didn't waste didn't waste too much time with that. Uh, but but I, I mean I don't you know I mean I would certainly write about him if if, if something that he did rose to that rose to the right. occasion. Right. But but I don't have any any mm-hmm. specific plans to. Mm-hmm. Um, of all the I mean you've you've interviewed Sumner Redstone you've interviewed Eisner, uh, Bob Johnson and a host of other people. Um, do you feel comfortable to say who you felt was the most dynamic leader? And I tell you, that's always um, it's always such a tough question um, because you talk to so many people. Right. Uh, it's always difficult to say like who's a, who's a most impressive. Mm-hmm. I mean, tomorrow, for example, I'm talking to uh, tomorrow morning, and not to drop names, but in the morning <laughs> I'm having breakfast with Jean Bernard Levy, who's a CEO of Vivendi. Right, which you know owned Universal and still right. owns Universal right. Music, mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch of bunch of telecom mm-hmm. uh, and cable um, businesses right. um, in France and mm-hmm. South America. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I think um, I think different CEOs are impressive at different times. You know, certainly the one who made the most who I would say is the most impressive CEO who I've talked to. Uh, and I'll tell you about my, the nature of our conversation <laughs> is, you know, I think without a doubt, Steve jobs. I mean, um, I don't even have to explain probably. <laughs> yeah. Phenomenal. Uh, just phenomenal. You know? Yeah. I mean, to, to have the kind of vision and you know what I, what I, see from Steve Jobs, and this doesn't come from my conversation with him, but what I see, and, and, and I've paid attention for a long time, I mean, going back to, back before he left Apple, was forced mm-hmm. out the first time, mm-hmm. is there is this absolute uh, fearless uh, approach, and I think that's one of the qualities mm-hmm. that really comes through with mm-hmm. the, 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 the best leaders and the most impressive leaders of People who are not afraid to fail. I mean, Steve Jobs basically failed the first time at Apple mm-hmm. and came back 
when the place was on life support. Oh, right, right. <laughs> I mean, really, they were yeah, they three were. months away from bankruptcy. Right. Microsoft he, had to give them a loan. Yeah, yeah, and he turned it into, you know, arguably the most phenomenal phenomenal company of our time. Well, there was a statistic I heard recently that Apple has more money than the U.S. government. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> doubt it. I, I mean, they 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 surpassed who who's it Exxon? Yeah. As right mm-hmm. as yep. as the largest company, I mean, it's an amazing company, and one that is so built on uh, one man's mm-hmm. vision and sort of uh, uh, pursuit of perfection. Yes, with products, yes. It, it, it's it's unbelievable. But phenomenal. but my conversation with Steve was not because I was interviewing Steve. My conversation with Steve was because I was doing a cover story on Michael Eisner. Okay. Who also was a pretty good CEO. He right. had a uh, unceremonious um, um, departure at mm-hmm. um, that's right at Disney, but was a great CEO mm-hmm. uh, during his time and built tremendous mm-hmm. value there. So I actually uh, went out to a World Series game with Michael Eisner. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was when Disney owned the Anaheim team, and we went into the booth, and it was sort of star-studded. So I go down and sit next to this guy and his son. And it's Steve Jobs. So we sat and watched a World Series game together. He wow. didn't even know I was writing about the company. And at the time, he was bumping heads with Eisner and right, Disney. Right, with Pixar. Yes, <laughs> yes. So I wrote about that in the story. I was told he wasn't too crazy about the fact that he found out this guy he had talked to all the <laughs> time. But, but none of that stuff was quoted. But sure. But that was a pleasure, Yes, uh, yes. actually, as opposed to uh, me sort of, you know, wow. Grilling him uh, in an interview. Well, Brett, believe it or not, we are out of time. You got to come back. I'd love to. You got to come back. We'll have you back on to talk about NewYork.com and the other uh, interviews that you've done with great leaders in the media industry. Thank you for coming on the program. It's my pleasure, definitely. Ladies and gentlemen, Brett Pulley, entrepreneur, journalist, author, and uh, my good friend. This is Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership. Remember, Leadership begins with you. This is WSOU 89.5 FM. Have a great weekend.